Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What's up, ghouls and booze? Ghouls and booze? That's yeah. your big opening? Yeah. She told me she had episode. a spooky episode opening. All right. What's up, ghouls and booze? Welcome back to Chicken Noodle Scoop Podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Gabby. And, and we're, we're the, the Fuller, Fuller Sisters. Sisters. So you asked and we delivered. This week we are doing a spooky stories episode and we are going to cover a couple crazy true crime stories for you guys this week. Orders up. The scoop is hot and ready to be served. Chicken noodle scoop. But before we get into all of that, let's jump right into the weekly scoop. So what did you do this week, Lex? Well, Gabby was in town last weekend, so that was super fun. You guys listened to our episode with our mom and Sean, and we just had like a fun night of pumpkin carving, playing games, and all of that good stuff. We went to the apple, not apple orchard, it's like a cider mill, got some iced cider and then we were gonna drive to a pumpkin patch it was way too crowded so we did not drive to a pumpkin patch well, and we, we did, did a random we drove to the pumpkin patch but we didn't go into the pumpkin patch yeah we didn't go into it um so yeah just like fun activities at home and then i drove gabby back to erie and we had a turkey dinner at our grandma's house it was delicious. and then she sadly had to fly home and then i had a full week of tests this week that i was um underprepared for because i hung out but that's okay It was worth it. And then as far as what else this week, literally nothing. Yesterday was 78 and sunny, and today is 48 and cloudy. So that is Buffalo weather for you. I don't know what we're going to do today. It's Saturday as we're recording this. Sean wants to go out to lunch when he gets home. So I don't know. Maybe we'll do that. But that's my week. Nothing, literally nothing exciting. Yeah, so once I got back to Florida, I spent the next day just having a full day of, like, getting my life back together and, like, unpacking, doing laundry, showering, cleaning the house, literally everything. And then just got some regular work stuff done, had our normal practices this week, and then I randomly decided on Wednesday, well, because I got my neon sign in and I finally put it up, and then I randomly decided on Wednesday that I wanted to redo, like, a lot of my room decor, so that's what I spent the day doing now, yesterday, I finally got that almost done. I went into Home Goods. The store is already like 50% Christmas, and every other aisle is like half of what it normally is. I don't know where they put their entire stock. Like normally with plants, there's like two full aisles of plants. They had half an aisle, if that. I don't even think it was a full like side of the aisle. They had nothing to choose from. I went up and down every single aisle at least three times hoping something would just appear. And it didn't. So that was sad. I won't go back to Home Goods for a few weeks now until I actually need Christmas decor because there's nothing else. Although I can't wait to decorate for Christmas. When is that acceptable? After Halloween? So here's the thing. Normally I do it, I feel like, around Thanksgiving. Honestly, last year it was the first snowfall for us against Sean's better beliefs, which was very early in November. 
But since I'm doing Vlogmas this year, I feel like I have to wait till December 1st because I want to vlog putting up the tree and everything. See, it's I was so thinking exciting. that too. Maybe so I'll I think wait it's going to have to be. And just that'll be my first Vlogmas video and I'll just film it early and then like stock up or something. That's a good idea actually because that'll be finals for me. So maybe I'll do that also like right after Thanksgiving, maybe we'll put up the tree. Speaking of, if you like our fun podcast episodes that are just like chatty playing games while we you know drink some wine and hang out i have a really funny youtube video coming up on wednesday that is us carving pumpkins while we were it's like right before we recorded the podcast so go watch that because it's really funny <laughs> but i say after thanksgiving especially because now i'm gonna have you guys over for that thanksgiving True, i don't want don't the tree want to be, to be up Christmas yet so already. i have to wait till at least then so that is See, what i'm going here's to do my thing i can start a little earlier because i'm not actually here for christmas yeah. so i got to enjoy it before that i would put yours up before thanksgiving i will okay i don't know when i don't even know where i'm gonna put my tree well thanksgiving is also like the very end of november this year isn't it always well it's always like the third week but it fluctuates between like the 24th and it's like i'm pretty sure it's like the last week of november like very end i think it's like the 27th this year which actually isn't that 26th so if you put it up after Thanksgiving, you're literally putting it up probably like December 1st still, like November 30th. Okay, that's perfect for me then, I guess. But the winter candles will be going up before that probably. I will so be putting on out that my note, fresh balsam. I need, I didn't even get fall candles. I also don't really trust myself to light them alone. I feel like I'm going to forget, but I want to get oh better God. at that. But anyway, on that note, I guess we're both committing to Vlogmas. We're going to try. I don't know if we're going to post every single day. I feel like I have no excuse because like that's my job now, but I've never done that. So I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm at least going to vlog every single day and maybe I'll like mesh a few days together in a vlog, but I'm going to yeah. try it. We're going to try. I'm also going to try it. It's going to be torture around finals, but I think my finals end pretty early. So hopefully I'll be okay. It's going to be very boring content around, but I, I have, love but watching I Vlogmas what... videos where people are busy and like there's not much. I still love it. It's just Christmassy. I, yeah. I'm excited to make a Vlogmas intro song. Me too. I have to find a song that's not copyright that I can still do that. I'm going to need your help with that. Okay. All right. Well. well, we just went on a big tangent. It's Halloween, guys. When you're listening to this, it's the week of Halloween. Of course, 2020 Halloween is on a Saturday when everybody could go do fun things and it's freaking coronavirus. So now we can't. I know. I had a random urge. Should we talk about? Are you do? We, are you even dressing up for Halloween? I don't know. I don't know. We don't really have anywhere to go, but maybe we'll just do it for fun. That's what. Like, I just have like little friend get-togethers of all of us that have already hung out. And then last night, I have two of those now because the one is the day before Halloween, and then one is on Halloween. So I was like, I need another costume. So randomly at midnight last night, I decided I'm going to be workout Barbie as one of them. And then actual Barbie as another one. And I bought cute stuff on Amazon that's literally getting delivered today. And I'm like, listen, I know Jeff Bezos gets all the hate, but this man deserves to be a trillionaire. If I can order a Halloween costume after midnight and it comes that same day. That's insane. I mean, I don't think he is really responsible for that, but the <laughs> system, yeah. Okay, anyway, let's get into the episode. So before we get into the true time stories, have you ever had anything spooky happen to you? I know, like, I used to play with a Ouija board all the time. Well, it was never my idea, but my friend group used to play with a Ouija board all the time. My friend group probably disowned me because I refused to do the Ouija board late at night with the lights off and get all spooky because I was terrified. I watched The Grudge in middle school and made my mom sit in the bathroom while I showered for, like, a week, and I, like, made her... 
I like slept in their room for like a week, mom and dad, because I was so scared. So safe to say, no, I have nothing <laughs> spooky because I didn't let that happen. There was one time with the Coberts. I know Macy listens, so this will be funny. I don't know if she remembers this. I think you were there, Gabby. We were in their neighborhood, like just playing outside and this white van was driving by and we thought we saw like them kidnapping little kids. I think they were just delivering phone books, but in my <laughs> head, in my head, this was the person that was going to kidnap us all. So I think that's honestly the spookiest thing that has ever happened to me. I really, truly don't think anything spooky. I don't think I let it because I get so worked up that I don't even let that come into my mind. So no. Yeah, honestly, I like we used to play the Ouija board all the time, but I I know someone was pushing on it because we would ask questions like how many toes do I have? And it would literally answer 20. And I'm like, well, one of you are really stupid and you're also pushing it. So I don't there was wow. one time that we played in like the basement of someone's house and like someone's phone completely shut off and the lights did flicker once. But it wasn't like I don't know. I don't think we played it right. I 100 percent believe one of them were pushing it. I also don't know why that was our form of entertainment as kids, but I don't think I've ever experienced anything spooky or like any ghost stories or yeah. anything like Me that. Me either. Me either, but I love true crime and I love thrillers, especially now I feel like I can actually watch things that are a little scarier and it doesn't really freak me out. It's probably because I'm on meds and that helps, <laughs> but... <laughs> But I will say I love podcasts like My Favorite Murder where they talk about true crime stories, but it's still See, I've funny. I've never listened to these type of episodes. Oh my gosh. You need to listen to My Favorite Murder because it's actually so good. Like you would like it. It's very interesting. It keeps you, it almost feels like you're watching TV because they're telling a story, but it's funny. So it's not scary, but it's interesting. I don't know. I love true crime. But I want to preface this by saying we are not making light of these situations like murder and crime. All of this is a horrible, horrible thing. But I find it very interesting and I know a lot of people out there also find it very interesting. So we're just going to be ourselves and we're just going to tell these stories in light of the spooky season. So that is that. I will say listening to these true crime podcasts and like watching true crime documentaries has made me a lot more I feel like self-aware when I'm out in public of these things happening. So maybe take it as an educational piece and try not to think too much into it but just keep yourself safe i picked some crazy stories that i don't think could ever and would ever happen to anyone else (laughs) well that's good that's that's a good thing then (laughs) do you want to start or do you want me to start we have to start because this one was literally in our hometown and we had no idea about it until the netflix documentary came out i still don't even know if i finished that i don't think you did So this is on Netflix. It's called Evil Genius. It's known as the Pizza Bomber Story. This, like, the guy literally lived two streets down from our dad's house. Like, the house we grew up in. I don't remember what... Okay, so 2003. So I was five. You were seven. And we just never heard about this. We never learned about this story in school from our parents. Nothing. And all of a sudden, it's on Netflix. And that's how I find out that this whole thing happened in our hometown. Okay, tell the story. Well, I was waiting for you to join in and you never said anything about it. I never finished the documentary, so I'm very interested in hearing this. We haven't also heard each other's stories, so this will be like exciting for us while we're recording this as well. But go ahead. Yeah, it is crazy that we literally never heard of this. Like literally, and Erie's not a big town. Anyway, at 2.28 p.m. on August 28, 2003, a middle-aged pizza delivery man named Brian Wells walked into a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania. 
He had a short cane. That bank no longer exists, by the way. He had a short cane in his right hand and a strained blue bulge under the collar of his t-shirt. Wells, who was 46 and balding, passed the... Why was that necessary? (laughs) Passed the teller a note. Gather employees with access codes to vault and work fast to fill bag with $250,000. It said you only have 15 minutes and he lifted a shirt to reveal a heavy box-like device hanging... Dangling from his neck. According to the note, it was a bomb. The teller who told Wells there was no way to get into the vault at the time filled the bag with cash, $8,702, and handed it over. Wells walked out, sucking on a dum-dum lollipop he grabbed from the counter, hopped into his car, and drove off. He didn't get far. Some 15 minutes later, state troopers spotted Wells standing outside his geo-metro in a nearby parking lot, surrounded him, and tossed him to the pavement, cuffing his hands behind his back. Wells told the troopers that while out on a delivery, he had been accosted by a group of black men who chained the bomb around his neck at gunpoint and forced him to rob the bank. It's going to go off, he told them in desperation. I'm not lying. The officers called the bomb squad and took positions behind their cars, guns drawn. TV camera crews arrived and began filming. For 25 minutes, Wells remained seated on the pavement, his legs curled beneath him. Did you call my boss? Wells asked the trooper at one point, apparently concerned that his employer would think he was shirking his duties. Hmm? Suddenly, <laughs> me. Poor guy totally has a me. bomb around his neck. He's like, "Did you, did you like, tell wait, my boss? I'm not. My just, boss is gonna think <laughs> I'm not, just I'm not doing my job." <laughs> Suddenly, the device started to emit an accelerating beeping noise. Wells fidgeted. It looked like he was trying to scoot backward to somehow escape the bomb strapped to his neck. Beep, 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 boom. That's literally how the article's written. The device <laughs> detonated, blasting him violently onto his back and ripping a five-inch gash in his chest. The pizza delivery man took a few last gasps and died on the pavement. It was 3.18 p.m. The bomb squad arrived three minutes later. They, they wrote this article in a weird way. They didn't get to, like, the whole beginning of it, but the police began sorting through a, all the physical evidence. In Wells' cars, they discovered the two-foot-long cane, which turned out to be an ingeniously crafted homemade gun. The bomb itself was likewise a marvel of a DIY design and construction. The device consisted of two parts. Okay, well, all this stuff isn't necessary. It's just the bomb. <laughs> The device also contained two Sunbeam kitchen timers and one electric electronic countdown timer. It had two wires. The contraption was a puzzle in and of itself. The most perplexing and intriguing pieces of evidence, though, were the handwritten notes that investigators found inside Wells' car. Addressed to the bomb hostage, the notes instructed Wells to rob the bank, then follow a set of complex instructions to find various keys and combination codes hidden throughout Erie. It contained drawings, threats, and detailed maps. If Wells did as he was told, the instructions promised he'd wind up with the keys and combination required to free him from the bomb. Failure or disobedience would result in certain death. There is only one way you can survive, and that is to cooperate completely, the notes read. The powerful booby-trapped bomb can be removed only by following our instructions. Act now, think later, or you will die. It seemed that whoever planned the robbery had also constructed a nightmare scavenger hunt for Wells, in which the prize was his life. In the frantic hours after Wells was killed, the cops tried completing the hunt themselves. The first note was straightforward enough. Exit the bank with the money and go to the McDonald's restaurant. We used to play in that McDonald's playpen or the play place. (laughs) It was that one. You know what I'm talking about? The one up there by Mm -hmm. Sam's Club all the time. Anyway. Get out of the car and go to the small sign reading drive through open 24 hours in the flower bed. By the sign, there is a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It has your next instructions. Wells drove straight there after he left the bank with a bag of cash. He retrieved a two-page note from the flower bed, which directed him up Peach Street to a wooded area several miles away, where a container with orange tape would hold the next set of instructions. Wells was caught before he got to that clue, but the investigators picked up the thread, locating the container with the orange tape. In it, they found a note directing them two miles south to a small road sign where the next clue would be waiting in a jar in the woods nearby. When they got there, they found the jar, but it was empty. Whoever had set this 
ordeal in motion, it seemed, had called it off once the cops had appeared and had probably been watching them every step of the way. Wells' clothing added another layer of intrigue. He died wearing two t-shirts, the outer one and blah, what is that word? I don't know, with a guest clothing logo. Wells wasn't wearing the shirt at work that morning and his relatives said it wasn't his. It appeared to be a taunt. Can you guess who is behind this? That was just one of the questions that perplexed investigators. What, for instance, was the purpose of the scavenger hunt? Why send a hostage hopping around Erie in broad daylight? Why scatter clues in public locations where they might be discovered? How was Wells chosen to be the hostage? The riddles transfixed the city of Erie and drew headlines in newspapers from St. Louis to Sydney. It is also set in motion It is an investigation with federal agents sniffing out clues and hunting down leads in twisted pursuit of the shadowy criminal who came to be known as the Collar Bomber. For seven years, the FBI was engaged in a scavenger hunt of its own, one that the collar bomber seemed to have planned as intricately as the one that had ensnared Wells. The hunt began at Mama Mia's Pizzeria. We also ordered from this pizzeria. This was Dad's favorite pizza. Well, it was the one closest to up. when our cheer gym was right by there. We used to order the pepperoni balls and the pizza and subs to practice all the time. This is where the poor guy worked. Anyway. That's where Wells was working at 1.30 p.m. on the day of the robbery, when an order came in for two small sausage and pepperoni pies to be delivered at a location on the outskirts of the city. Okay, he was a loyal employee. We get that. Anyway. Even though he was at the end of his shift, he agreed to deliver the order. He walked out of the shop, two pies in hand, at about 2 p.m. The delivery location, reachable only by a dirt road, was a TV transmission tower site in a wooded area off of busy Peach Street. When investigators combed the vicinity, they discovered shoe prints consistent with, well, consistent with Wells' footwear and tire tracks matching the treads on his Geo Metro. But the site offered no clues as to who may have lured him in or what happened once he arrived. All right, I'm trying to skip all the unnecessary details. Okay, the next day, a reporter and a photographer headed to the tower. The dirt road leading there was cordoned off by authorities but the journalist spotted a tall heavyset man in denim overalls pacing in front of a home that sat right next to it his backyard extended almost to the transition transmission tower the man identified himself as bill rothstein right you don't really need his background if you want this in detail please watch the evil genius documentary on netflix because it's insane but i'm trying to just give you like the synopsis of it without giving you bill rothstein's whole life story because it's not necessary so far moral of the story if it's time to go home go home from work don't go (laughs) above and beyond be a bad employee number two i just want to say if anybody ever did this to me and then they made me go on a scavenger hunt with a bomb strapped to my chest like i ain't solving that so you might as well just detonate that right now because there's no way I'm finding myself around all these places. But also, if, to anyone, find your clues. if I was a pizza delivery guy and they ordered a pizza to a dirt road to a TV transmission, I probably wouldn't deliver it. You know? He's just doing I, his job. He was a loyal I know, employee. He was so loyal. But, oh. Gabby, you worked in fast food for like a week. You cannot talk. <laughs> all right. Bill Rossi may have appeared to be just a man who owned a house next to a TV tower, but he turned out to be hiding her secret. On September 20th, less than a month after the bomb killed Wells, Rothstein called 911. At 8645 Peach Street in the garage, there's a frozen body, he told the police dispatcher. It's in the freezer. Within hours Hence of the frozen. I know. <laughs> Within hours of making the call, Rothstein was in custody. He told the cops that he had been in agony for weeks. He considered killing himself and he had gone as far as to write a suicide note. Rothstein expressed his apologies to those who cared. Okay. But he did not kill them or participate in his death. 
The body in the freezer was Jim Roden. The note opened with a curious disclaimer. This has nothing to do with the Wells case. Over the next two days, Rothstein explained to police how a dead man came to be in this freezer. In mid-August, he said he'd receive a phone call from an ex-girlfriend, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, whom he had dated in the 1960s and early 70s. Deal Armstrong told him she had shot her live-in boyfriend, James Roden, in the back with a Remington 12-gauge shotgun in a dispute over money. Now she needed help removing the body and cleaning up the scene inside her eerie home, about 10 miles from Rothstein's place. Rothstein did what she asked. He kept the corpse in a chest freezer in his garage for five weeks. He painstakingly melted down the murder weapon and scattered the pieces around Erie County. But Rothstein said he couldn't go through with the plan to grind up the body, and he called 911 because he was afraid of what Deal Armstrong might do to him. On September 21st, the day after Rothstein called 911, Deal Armstrong was arrested for the murder of Roden. Six months later, in January 2005, she pleaded guilty but mentally ill and was sentenced to 7 to 20 years in state prison. But by that time, Rothstein was past caring about the old girlfriend he'd given up to the cops. He had died of lymphoma in July 2004. But in April 2005, they got a phone call from a state police officer who had just met with Deal Armstrong about an unrelated homicide. Rothstein's suicide note, it said, was a lie. Deal Armstrong had said that Roden's murder had everything to do with the collar bomb plot. When the feds met with Deal Armstrong, she told them that if they could arrange a transfer from Muncie State Penitentiary to the minimum security prison in Cambridge Springs, a facility much closer to Erie, she would tell them everything she knew. Even before she was arrested for killing Rodin, Deal Armstrong was one of the Erie's most notorious figures, well known for her string of dead lovers. She first drew public attention in 1984 when, at 35, she was charged with murdering her first boyfriend, Robert Thomas. Deal Armstrong claimed she shot him six times in self-defense and a jury eventually acquitted her. Four years later, her husband, Richard Armstrong, died of cerebral hemorrhage. The death was ruled accidental, but questions lingered. Armstrong had a head injury when he arrived at the hospital, but the case was never forwarded to the coroner's office. Back in high school, according to former classmates, Deal Armstrong was known for her dazzling intelligence, and she still possessed an almost encyclopedic knowledge of literature, history, and the law. Okay, blah, blah, blah. She was insane, but she was a genius. A.K.A. an evil genius? She seemed to be exactly the kind of person, murderous, eccentric, and intent on demonstrating her intellectual gifts, who might devise an overly complicated bank heist. She also seemed to be the kind of person who would likely be able, unable to stop herself from telling the world about her brilliant use. She just wanted the world to know that she was smarter than everyone, but also insane. While she insisted that she was not in any way involved in the plot, she admitted that she knew about it, that she had supplied the kitchen timers that were used in the bomb, that she was within a mile of the bank at the time of the robbery. She also said that Wells, the dead pizza delivery guy, was not just a victim but had been in on the plan. And so was Rothstein, the man who turned her in for Rodin's murder. In fact, she asserted he had masterminded the whole thing. But even as Deal Armstrong pointed the finger at Rossi, Can you read? <laughs> I went to look up to see how long I've been reading this story, and then I totally lost my place. I... Okay, there's so much to this. I, like, don't know where to stop. Okay, so they met with her over and over. She killed Rodin because he was going to tell about the robbery. And that she helped, that he helped measure Wells' neck for the bomb. A witness came forward to say that an ex-television repairman turned crack dealer named Kenneth Barnes was also involved. Barnes was an old fishing buddy of Deal Armstrong. But Barnes was already in jail un to unrelated drug charges. Barnes confirmed that Deal Armstrong was the mastermind behind the collar bomb plot. He claimed she needed the cash so that she could pay him to kill her father, who she believed was blowing through his fortune, money she expected to inherit. Barnes insisted he was kept in the dark about several aspects of the plot, but even with holes, his 
account corroborated as much of what the agents had already heard. Corroborated. Cor- corroborated. <laughs> I, this We're is, learning new words. So ma- Well, I feel like I've been reading forever. I'm just trying to go fast and get this done. But it's like such a crazy story that I don't, I feel like I can't cut anything out. At the conclusion of the drive, she admitted to being at several locations linked to the crime. Deal Armstrong told the agent she wouldn't provide any more information without receiving an immunity letter. It was too late. The woman who couldn't stop talking had already said far too much. In July 2007, a month shy of the four-year anniversary, the attorney's office in Erie called a news conference about a major development in the case. Mary Beth Buchanan announced that the investigation was over. Deal Armstrong and Barnes were charged with carrying out the sensational plot the sensational crime, a plot that Deal Armstrong had put into motion. The indictment also charged that other conspirators were involved. Rothstein was one, and Wells, the perpetrated, per, per, listen, perpetrated. No, it's not even that word. The victim was another. Pulling together perpetuated. Nope. Purported. <laughs> okay, I can't read it. So I'm not around. But go ahead. Okay, the indictment charged that Wells was in on the scheme from the beginning. He had agreed to rob the bank wearing what he thought was a fake bomb. The scavenger hunt, he was told, was simply a ruse to fool the cops. If he got caught, he could point to the menacing instructions as evidence that he was merely following orders. But over time, Buchanan said Wells went from being a planner to an unwilling participant. At some point, instead of merely playing the part of a hostage, Wells was double-crossed and actually became one. The fake bomb turned out to be a real run, and the scavenger hunt went from a clever piece of misdirection to a real-life race against the clock. Sitting in the press section, Wells' family seemed stunned. One of his sisters, Barbara Wright, repeatedly shrieked liar as Buchanan completed her statement. Why would Wells participate in such a plot? Did he realize the danger he was in? Blah, blah, blah. Barnes pleaded guilty in September 2008 to the conspiracy and weapons charged involved in the collarbone plot. He was sentenced to 45 years behind bars, but he agreed to testify against Neil Armstrong in the hope of getting his sentence reduced. Okay, she went to trial. On day five of the trial, Ken Barnes took the stand. Summarizing the strange characters linked to the Wells plot as a case of twisted, intellectually bright, dysfunctional individuals who outsmarted themselves. Barnes, the ex-crack dealer and would-be hitman, was this star witness. And his final one, he was also the man who seemed prepared finally to tell the whole story of what happened in the days leading up to August 28, 2003, the day of the robbery. Barnes, who had the face and sparse collection of teeth of the former crack addict he was. What? Like, these details aren't necessary. They paint the picture, Gabby. So as you're reading this, people can picture what's going on. (laughs) All right. Barnes said, devised the plan. Deal Armstrong devised the plan and enlisted a few co-conspirators to help carry it out. Rothstein was one of them. Wells was another, lured in with the promise of a payday. He certainly needed the money. It turned out that the quiet pizza man had a relationship with a prostitute. With the help of his pal Barnes, he bought crack, which he then gave to the prostitute in exchange for sex. But in the weeks before the robbery... Wells fell into debt with his crack dealers and needed cash. It was only on the afternoon of the crime when he delivered the pizzas to the TV transmission tower that Wells realized he had been double-crossed and that the bomb was real. He was tackled as he tried to sprint away and locked into the the device at gunpoint. On October 26th, the eighth day of the trial, Deal Armstrong finally got the opportunity to tell her version of events. For five and a half hours over two days, she used the witness stand as her stage. Her wavy black hair looked greasy and clung to the sides of her face. Every time she opened her mouth, she unleashed a torrent of words. She ridiculed her lawyer. That's a stupid question. She belittled the prosecutor. If this is the kind of evidence you have against me, I'm telling you this is a pitiful case. She cried. She yelled more than 50 times. The judge sought to cut her off. During her first day on the stand, she said, I never met Brian Wells, and I never knew Brian Wells. Never. I became aware of him the day that he died. I saw it on the news. So she was literally insane that they had all 
evidence against her and she refused to say she was guilty even though she's already been in jail for murdering like four of her ex-boyfriends ex-husbands whatever they were okay this story is way too long and i've been talking forever but basically she's guilty they find all the people in it it is an insane story that i literally like doesn't seem real but it was started with just a pizza delivery man he got collared into a bomb then a bank robbery then a scavenger hunt and then he just blew up on the street i now every time i pass that street that's all i think of but please go watch the documentary on netflix because it is yeah because gabby did a horrible job of telling that story well the article was so long and i feel like it was written in a weird order but it was the best one i could find but the story is absolutely insane and the fact that that happened in our hometown and we knew nothing about it until it was literally put on netflix makes no sense to me okay well if you're still listening i'm gonna tell mine now so i chose as my first story the murder of 20 year old college student angela samada by donald bess and it says at the title who stabbed her 18 times angela samada who was known as angie was 20 years old when she was murdered in 1984 by donald andrew bess she was a junior at southern methodist university in dallas texas studying computer science and electrical engineering at the time her body was found inside her off-campus apartment on the night of October 11, 1984, Samada called Russell Buchanan, then 23, who she met at Andrew's restaurant on McKinney Avenue and asked if he wanted to hang out with her and her friend, Anita. Samada also invited her boyfriend, Ben McCall, but because he worked in construction and had to report to work the following morning, he stayed home. Ugh. Buchanan said yes, and the trio went to Lakewood's Boardwalk Beach Club before heading to Shannon Wine's Nostromo Restaurant. They then got into a club upstairs called the Rio Room, where they danced and had a few drinks. David Skelton, a Rio Room employee, testified that Samada did not appear to be intoxicated when she and her friends left the club around 1 a.m. Samada dropped Russell Buchanan off at his apartment on Matilda Street, and Anita was supposed to spend the night with her, but she changed her mind because Samada had plans to attend a football game early that morning. Girl, I don't want to not blame you for that. Therefore, Samada drove Anita to her dorm. She then stopped by her boyfriend's house to say goodnight. They spoke briefly before she returned to her apartment. At around 1.45 a.m., she called McCall on the telephone. When answered, the first words she uttered were, talk to me. From there, the conversation was odd and she appeared to be nervous about something. Samada began to rumble until McCall interjected when he heard a noise in the background. She told him that she let a man into her apartment to use a telephone in the bathroom. Then she asked McCall if there was a payphone nearby the convenience store. He said yes. That's when she relayed the information to the man in her apartment before telling McCall that she would call him back. Samada never called back, so he called her and he got no response. Ben McCall got into his truck, grabbed his cell phone, and he called her several times as, she, as he drove to her apartment. When he got to the second floor apartment, he knocked on the door, but no one responded. He then tried opening the door, but it was locked. So he drove to the convenience store that Samada talked about, but she was not there. McCall drove back to her apartment and called 911. Police officers arrived at the apartment, kicked in the door. Upon entering, they found Angela Samada dead. Her nude body was on her bed, covered in blood. Her legs were dangling on the side of her bed, and her eyes were open. Ugh, that's horrible. Samada's remains were transported to the state medical examiner's office for an autopsy, which revealed that she had been stabbed in the chest 18 times. Ten of the wounds went through her heart and lungs. Those are big stabs. The autopsy also indicated that she had a blood alcohol content of 0.09, and she had been sexually assaulted more moments before she was murdered. 
An OBGYN explained that there was a lack of bruising and trauma found on Samata's body as being consistent with that of a woman who submitted to a sexual assault under the threat of force. After blood and semen were collected from her body, experts were able to determine the killer's blood type. Ben McCall and one of Samata's ex-boyfriends from her hometown were initial suspects in the case, but when their blood type did not match, they were excluded. However, Russell Buchanan's blood type was a match, and because of that, he was kept under 24-hour surveillance for six months. During that time, law enforcement officers would watch his every move. They would often pick him up from his job or his home and take him to the police station for questioning. Officers were so certain that he was the killer, they tried everything in their power to get him to confess. During one interview, Buchanan stated that detectives held up graphic crime scene photos of her body and said, She dropped you off. You were mad at her because you wanted to have sex with her. You went to her apartment. She let you in. You stabbed her, she started to scream, and you stabbed her, she stabbed her 18 times. When they didn't get a confession or find any forensic evidence that would link him to the murder, the case went cold by the summer of 1985. However, more than 20 years later in 2008, detectives reopened the case after her friend and college roommate, Sheila, made nearly 700 calls to the Dallas Police Department insisting they take another look. So, this girl's best friend and roommate was like, uh-uh, I am not letting this case go cold. My best friend was murdered, and I am not okay with that. So this girl literally called the police station 700 times to insist that they take a look at this case. I know. I would hope my best friends would do that. Yeah, Wysocki told... Oh, Sheila Wysocki. So just keep that name in mind. That's Sheila, her best friend. She told the BBC News in 2018 that the most heartbreaking part of making all those calls was that they said not another person in 20 years had called. Think about that. Not one person. How can someone die such a violent death and no one call and want to know why and want to know who? That still makes me cry. Authorities used DNA technology that wasn't available in 1984, and it led them to a man named Donald Andrew Bess, who was 59 years old. He was then charged with capital murder and the death of Angela Samata. At the time, Bess was charged with the crime. He was already serving life at Huntsville Prison in Texas for three unrelated sexual assault cases. That makes me feel better that he was already in custody for other things. But, like, imagine this girl didn't call. This murder would never been, like, solved. And this girl's I, like, family and friends can't like, wouldn't that have known. There comes a time where, like, they just stop trying to solve it. I know. Isn't that like, crazy? Why do you just give up? According to the news, Bess was a convicted rapist who had been released on parole for seven months before Samada was killed. So this is why I chose this story, because I am very angry about this. So he was a convicted racist, rapist, sorry, not racist. <laughs> well, he could have been that <laughs> he too. Was, he probably was that too, but he was a convicted rapist who had been released on parole for seven months. So this guy was already convicted of this crime, was released on parole, and then did it again while he was on parole. I am so mad about this. Don't even get us started on this whole parole thing. So when she heard a knock, she attempted to get up or call out. Um, okay, so they basically they were saying that they believed that when Angela Samada Angela Samada's boyfriend knocked on her apartment door, the attacker was still in there. So the boyfriend knocked on the door and the guy was still in there. When she heard a knock, she attempted to get up or call out. And he believes that this was the action that called that caused the assailant to stab her repeatedly in the chest. So she was still alive when the boyfriend got there, which is heartbreaking. And because she tried to like get help and call out, he stabbed her 18 times. And then Bess cleaned up the crime scene and fleed when the boyfriend went to the convenience store. So a jury deliberated for less than an hour to find him guilty of the crime, and he was sentenced to death. He filed an appeal, 
but it was rejected in 2016 and he will remain on death row. Now, this article was written August 2020, so obviously he is still on death row and has not been killed in prison, but that is the story of Angela Samata's murder, and I chose it because I think her friend is phenomenal for following up, and I think it is crazy that this man was already freaking convicted, and I'm looking at a picture of him, and he looks like a rapist, and they let him out on parole, and then he did it again and killed this poor girl. She is 20 years old. She's a college student. She is an engineering student. It just broke my heart, but that is the story of Angela Samata, and it is just crazy. Literally crazy. Do you want to tell yours, or do you want me to go again? Well, I had two other ones, but they're both so long, and I tried to find, like, a, a little Spark Notes version of them, See, like, this one's too long, and there's so many conversations back and forth. While you're looking, I'm going to tell my next one. This is the true crime story of John List, the perfect family man who killed his perfect family. Gabby, I want you to listen to this while you look up your stories, though, because this is crazy, too. John Emil List planned the murder so carefully he almost got away with it. It took eight, excuse me, I have hiccups. It took 18 years to catch him. Okay. John List was a Sunday school teacher and successful bank executive. He lived in a mansion in New Jersey with his wife and their three children. The Lists were even comfortable enough to provide John's mother, including housing her in an in-law apartment. So this house was huge, and John's mother lived there, the three kids, and his wife. He was the perfect family man until things went drastically wrong. Despite his seemingly pristine life, List was also known for being an aloof, cold man with few friends. His lack of social skills caused him many problems, even leading to repeated job losses. So, John List killed his perfect family and started a new one, and he almost got away with it. Four weeks before he killed his family, List left every day for work, but only got as far as the train station, where he would spend the day reading. His wife and children and mother did not know that he had lost his job, but he knew they were going to find out. The mortgage was not being paid. The foreclosure process had begun. He was about to be exposed as a failure. Something had to be done. On November 9, 1971, after the children left for school, List shot his wife Helen in the back of the head as she was drinking her coffee. He then went upstairs and shot his 84-year-old mother. He took a break and made himself lunch and then went to the bank to close his accounts and cash his mother's savings bonds. When his daughter Patricia, then 16, and son Frederick, 13, came home, he shot them too. Then he went to his high school to watch his 15-year-old son John Jr. play in a soccer game. After the game, he drove his son home, shot him in the chest and face. He then called the children's schools to say they'd be away for a while. Like, just picture this. So this man, for weeks, drove to the train station, pretended he was going to work, would sit there reading all day and come home because he didn't want his family to know that he lost his job. Then... While his wife is having coffee in the morning, he shoots her. He then goes upstairs and shoots his own mother, has lunch, pretends the day is normal, goes and picks up two of his three kids from school, kills them, goes and watches his son's soccer game. This literally just sounds like a game of Among Us. Like, he's just killing everyone so no one catches him. Oh, we should have talked about that in our weekly scoop. Gabby got me hooked on this stupid game called Among Us. If you have not played it, you've probably seen the memes about it. It's It's very addicting. Do it. But anyway, literally what this sounds so, like. like. He's just the imposter and he is just killing everyone. So he is a religious man and he wrote to his pastor after committing the murders. According to List, he was attempting to save his family's souls because the 1970s had become a, a sinful time. He believed that his family was succumbing to temptation, especially after his daughter expressed her interest in becoming an actress. He viewed the occupation as corrupt and linked to Satan. 
However, many criminal profilers concluded that Liszt fabricated this motive in order to ease his mind and lessen his stress. So he's blaming religion and all of this instead of just owning the facts that he literally just killed his whole family. He put the bodies of his wife and children in sleeping bags and left them on the floor of the mansion's ballroom. He left his mother's body in her apartment. The next day, he cut his picture out of all of the family portraits so police would not have a photo for the wanted poster that they drew up. So he literally went around his mansion and cut himself out of all of the family portraits. He turned down the thermostat and turned on the radio to a religious station. Then he vanished. Despite the great lengths List went to in order to delay the search, teachers grew suspicious of the prolonged absence of the children. Concerned neighbors alerted law enforcement after noticing that the lights were constantly left on. Neighbors also realized that the lights in the mansion were starting to burn out one by one. It would be nearly a month before police found the bodies. They launched a nationwide manhunt, but the trail had gone cold. It would take another 18 years for police to learn where John List went. He had left his car at the airport, but that was just a ruse. In fact, he had taken a bus to Denver where he found a job as a hotel cook using the name Robert Clark. Eventually, he got a better job as an accountant for H&R Block. He joined the Lutheran Church and met a widow, Dolores Miller. They soon married and moved to Richmond, Virginia. John List might have lived the rest of his life in freedom if it weren't for the TV show America's Most Wanted. The show featured the List family killings in 1989. They had a forensic sculptor create a bust showing what List most likely looked like 18 years after he killed his family. His old neighbors in Denver recognized him. He was sentenced to five consecutive life terms and died in prison in 2008. How freaking crazy is this? How did he get away with it for so long? I mean, it was back in the time when, like, it wasn't as easy to catch people. They didn't have social media. But, like, how crazy is it to be this Dolores Miller woman and thinking you're marrying someone named Robert Clark who used to be a cook, now an insurance agent, and then you find you watch this on TV and you're like, oh, my God. He murdered everyone. So they had a forensic psychologist try to make this bust, which is, like, a sculpture of him. And the theory is that he would use glasses to disguise himself as someone more important than he was which was proven accurate so this forensic psychologist like literally thought up this plan and he actually did this that's crazy. when this was arrested he was wearing the exact style of glasses that the forensic psychologist had envisioned like how insane is that he said that he killed his family to spare them the humiliation of losing their home because he hoped that they would go to heaven psychiatrists say he never showed remorse for his cold-blooded murder of his family during the trial, it was confirmed that List suffered from con obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and it caused him to consider only two solutions to his predicament, accept welfare or kill his family. So naturally, he chose to kill his family. <laughs> or like find another Oh dog. my gosh. Then it gets even crazier. The FBI posed another question during his disappearance. Was he also D.B. Cooper? The infamous case involved a man supposedly named Dan Cooper who bought a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington on November 24, 1971. While the plane was in motion, Cooper hijacked the plane and made several demands. Afterwards, he jumped out of the plane with a parachute and ran some money he had demanded. Investigators drew a link between the two men since both committed their crimes November of 1971. They also, also shared physical similarities. Both were white men the same height and weight who appeared to be in their 40s. They both wore glasses. And so investigators literally thought that List might have committed the crime under the reasoning that he had nothing left to lose. However, in 1989, when he was captured, he denied any involvement in the Cooper hijacking. Eventually, he was removed as a suspect. Thus, the true identity of Cooper remains a mystery as of this day. 
As of 2016, the FBI suspended active investigation of the Cooper case, citing the need to focus their resources on investigating other issues of higher priority. So how freaking crazy is that? They did a made-for-TV movie about this. I have not watched it, but I did listen to the My Favorite Murder podcast episode about this as well, and it was a crazy story when I heard it then, so I felt like I had to share it here. So go watch those movies if you're interested in more. They made a couple, like, crimes-inspired movies also called The Stepfather and The Usual Suspects um, as well about okay. that. But I have two little notes to add. One, well, not even notes, questions, actually, for you. Did you know a life okay. sentence was 25 years? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Do you not remember the term 25 to life? Yes, but, like, who, why would that be considered life? Because back in the day when they probably made that, people didn't live that long, is my guess. I don't know. I, or maybe with research, it was like 25 years is all people lived in prison. I don't know. True. Okay. Another thing. Are all the stories in How to Get Away with Murder true stories? Yes. All of them Oh, are. How to Get Away with Murder. Sorry, yes. I thought you meant my favorite murder. No. How to Get, how away, to get away with, with murder? murder? No. I don't think any of them are true stories. Okay. I don't know. As I was no just idea. randomly, I was like, I don't think I've ever thought about that. And Never I looked if it that up. That was a thing. I don't well, think so. Let's though. look it up real quick. We've been loving that show also, but yeah, how crazy is that? And then so List slow. List died of complications from pneumonia at age eighty-two while he was in custody. So he is no longer around. But that story is freaking insane. The things people will do to avoid just being like, "Oh, I lost my job." If I lost my job, I would come home, eat chips and dip on the couch, and watch TV. Not kill my family. But hey, <laughs> we all have our different personality traits. Do you want me to read my third one? Because I feel no, like I'm killing it and you are doing nothing. <laughs> well, I have one that's... I just was looking up to see if those were real stories, but... I don't think any of them are, to okay. be completely honest with you. I have one. I have so many windows open right now of stories. Okay. So this one happened in Florida, and it is Abraham Shakespeare's Florida Lotto Murder Mystery. All the details. Some say winning the lottery will change their life. They're not wrong, but they're definitely thinking it'll do more good than harm. If we've learned anything from the stories like Abraham Shakespeare's, they're thinking wrong. What a name. Abraham Shakespeare. I know. It sounds fake, right? <laughs> yeah, it's literally like just thinking of like the first two famous people off the top of your head and putting it together. In 2006, Shakespeare was like any other man, buying a lottery ticket hoping for his piece of the pot. But unlike most Americans, Shakespeare, Shakespeare actually won the $30 million jackpot. After taxes, he still walked away with $17 million. That, like, I hate that. I hate that that's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, you win $30 million. No, you don't. You win $17 million. Like, what? take taxes out before you even tell them. That's okay, just, but also anyway, $17, $17 million. Is <laughs> Still a ton of money, but... That's exactly where his life took a turn for the worse. Naturally, plenty of people came out of the woodwork looking for a portion of Abraham Shakespeare and his newfound fortune. The friend that went into the store and bought Shakespeare's winning ticket demanded at least $1 million of the private money. His story changed, saying he got the ticket stolen out of his wallet. But of course, the story was false, so Shakespeare prevailed in court. He moved into a gated community shortly after getting the money, but that didn't stop people from harassing him from money. Close friends noted that Shakespeare felt lonely and angered by the number of people just reaching out to him for money. Well, yeah. One of the people coming out of the woodwork, one of the people coming out of the woodwork was Dee Dee Moore. She reached out to Shakespeare, saying that she wasn't looking for his money, but to actually be a financial advisor and help him set up a business to manage his money. 
the two set up Abraham Shakespeare LLC, with more in control of the funds. Outside of his million-dollar home, Shakespeare really was not spending the money, having only bought a Rolex watch and a new Nissan. So Moore decided to use this to her advantage, taking $1 million to purchase new cars for herself and treat herself to a nice vacation. Sometime after the formation of the company, Shakespeare disappeared with no trace. When questioned by police, Moore gave a variety of different places that Shakespeare ran off to, saying she helped him since he was getting annoyed by people asking for money. In the meanwhile, Moore was getting herself into financial trouble. The cars she paid for with Shakespeare's money were about to be repossessed since she fell on behind on payments. She had faked a rape and kidnapping attempt to pretend like that's why her car was in debt, but she was charged and punished on probation for the false claims. Family and friends were doubtful of Shakespeare's condition, condition as his texting habits changed. They weren't wrong. The normally illiterate man was now having texts that sounded coherent because they were coming from Moore, but when they texted questions that Moore couldn't answer, she would leave them on read. Naturally, the family of Shakespeare's was concerned and filed a police in inquiry. Someone gave a tip to saying to check Moore's home. There, nine feet deep under her backyard, police found Shakespeare's body. The way Shakespeare died varied from drug dealers to Moore's 14-year-old son. Finally, Moore stuck with a story that she killed him in self-defense. As police continued their investigation, they discovered all of Shakespeare's money would gone out of the LLC. Talking with associates of Moore, it became clear that she was trying to find someone to take the fall for Shakespeare's death, offering up to $200,000 if people would lie to the police for her. No one bought into her deal, though, and she was arrested with a $1 million bail set. In December 2012, Moore was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. When you buy a Mega Millions ticket, remember Abraham Shakespeare if you become an instant millionaire. First of all, some random lady just wants to come up and pretend to be your financial advisor and you just accept it and give her control of all your money this person had never had this kind of money you i know, know what i mean like, i know do you have more to say or are you just so <laughs> i thought you I'm were like gonna... waiting for you to be like i know i know i thought you were gonna keep going that's just crazy and then first of all i don't that story didn't go into details of like how did she kill him what happened like but it's, cr- like, crazy that she got away with it for so long and the family just thought they were texting him and he just disappeared out of nowhere and no one... Isn't that insane? We need a code word. Let's establish just right now on the podcast where anybody that can kill us is listening and it won't work. But <laughs> we need a code word so that if we're ever suspicious that it's not you talking, we can say, what's the code word? And you can tell me. Well, we can't so, say it on the podcast. That defeats the I whole purpose. I know I'm saying... And we, well yeah because we have so many listeners <laughs> no but we need to discuss this off, off air okay <laughs> off pod we need a code word okay. okay i am going to tell one more story so this is the 11 year old serial killer i thought this was crazy so i'm gonna read this to you all mary bell was born to teenage prostitute Betty McCricket in 1957. Ooh, Betty later married. Name. Betty later married Billy Bell. I feel like I'm. This is like a tongue twister. <laughs> Betty later married Billy Billy Bell. <laughs> Although their home life was continued to be unstable, they lived in Scottswood, an economically depressed high crime area of Newcastle. This is in the United Kingdom. Mary claimed that her mother tried to kill her on several occasions, and she testified that she was subjected to frequent sexual abuse. By the time of the killings, she was already known at school as an attention seeker. This is so sad. The first of the Mary Bell murders occurred on May 25th, 1968, the day before her 11th birthday. 
Four-year-old Martin Brown's body was found in a vacant house in Scottswood. Although the sh- although the she strangled the boy, I think that's a typo in this article. <laughs> although she strangled the boy, her grip was not strong enough to leave ligature marks, leading to uncertainty about the cause of death. Two days later, Mary and 13-year-old Norma Bell, no relation, very weird coincidence, broke into and vandalized a nursery. They left notes claiming to claiming responsibility for the murder, although police initially dismissed the confession as a prank. On July 31st, 1968, she killed again. Mary and Norma strangled three-year-old Brian Howe, leaving his body on wasteland in Scottswood area. Before leaving the crime scene, she carved the letter M into the boy's stomach with scissors. She also cut off part of his hair, scratched his legs, mutilated his penis. Okay. How the old medical was she examiner eleven. <laughs> and in a quote it says, Mary Bell, I like hurting little things that can't fight back. Oh. So this my poor girl God. was being abused at home, so she then went and did it again. That's why I think side note really quick. The criminal justice system needs to really take a bigger look into mental health. Like, I think so many things can go back to mental health. And, you know, we're big advocators for mental health that, like, they need. That's why I've always been interested in being a criminal profiler and, like, working for the FBI in psychological aspects. Because I think that that is so fascinating. I'm still debating on switching life paths, to be completely honest with you. But (laughs) third year of dental school, I think, is a little bit late. But. I just, oh my gosh, because I find it so interesting. It is. I think the reason I chose dental school over doing this path, even though I'm so passionate about it, is because I think it would take such a toll on my own mental health Mm. that I don't think I could do it every single day. So, yeah. Anyways, the medical examiner suspected the criminal might be a child because of relatively little force that was used. Eventually, they linked Brown's murder with Howe's, and the police questioned children throughout the area looking for anyone with clues to the murders or anyone who could substantiate their whereabouts, who couldn't substantiate their whereabouts. The break in the case came when Mary and Norma gave inconsistent answers. Oof. You're 11 and you and your friend cannot get the same story down? That is just disaster waiting. Detectives brought in both girls for further questioning. I feel like like I was so nervous when I got into the principal's office for a stupid really? thing that I can't imagine getting called in as an 11-year-old. Well, clearly she was beyond her years of... Well, she was like everything she went through well that's what i'm saying like that obviously matured her well beyond 11 in terms of like those kind of scenarios like i doubt she was even stressed walking into that she was probably so like yeah just a completely different human that just numb to it yeah right mary tried mary tried to blame the killings on an older boy but flora who was more timid broke down and accused mary the case went to trial. So mary was like "Mm -mm, this ain't me it's that boy and flora was like oh no it was mary (laughs) The case went to trial in December 1968. Norma testified that she begged Mary to stop hurting him. She was acquitted of her role in the killings. On the other hand, Mary at the time, the youngest serial killer in British history, was convicted of manslaughter instead of murder. The jury concluded she had diminished responsibility based on court-appointed psychiatrist testimony that she exhibited classic symptoms of psychopathy. Yet she still posed a very grave danger to other children. Yeah. And sentenced her to be detained in her majest- at Her Majesty's pleasure. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> With no fixed termination date, detention at Her Majesty's pleasure was effectively a lifetime sentence unless the government chose to release her. She was imprisoned in the secure child children's unit at the Red Bank Community Home. In 1970, she falsely accused a guard of sexually assaulting her. The guard was acquitted in court. 
When she reached adulthood, she was transferred to the Moore Court Open Prison. She and another prisoner escaped briefly in 1977, although they were apprehended three days later. In the interim, they met and spent the night with two boys. She made headlines nor only for her escape, but also the account of losing her virginity that night. You go, Mary. (laughs) She escaped from prison and lost her virginity. What the actual heck? She was released from prison in 1980 at age 23 after serving 12 years of her sentence. The home office granted her a new name and protected her identity so she could live in anonymity without harassment. The press had always strived to find her, however. She had three identities and moved at least five times. The anonymity order also covered her daughter, who was born in 1984. The daughter did not know of her mother's murderous past, at least initially. Wait, was that... The prote- did she get pregnant on the night she lost her virginity or not related at all? I don't know. Do the math. I'm not sure. She was released in 1980. Her daughter was born in 1984. No. Oh. <laughs> the daughter did not know of her mother's murderous past, at least initially. The protection was supposed to extend to her daughter only until her 18th birthday. In 2003, in a much-publicized case, the high court granted both Mary and the child the right to live in anonymity for the rest of their lives. When Belle became a grandmother, the high court amended the order to apply also to the grandchild known as Z. As a result, an order protecting the child of the child, nope, the identity of the child, is sometimes called a Mary Bell order. The decision outraged the victim's families. It's all about her and how she has to be protected said Martin Brown's mother. As victims, we are not given the same rights as killers. I will agree that is true. Absolutely. However, I don't know if it's the kid's fault. So I don't think the kids should be punished, but I don't think she should be allowed to live in anonymity. No. Granted, she was she was 11, but yeah, it's all crazy. One time, the anonymity was broken in 1998 when she was paid to cooperate with author Giddy Serenis, I don't know these names, book about the Mary Bell murders. Brown's sister Sharon expressed outrage, saying she hoped the government would set limits on Mary's ability to profit from the Booker movie deals. Yeah, that's ridiculous. But they justified it by saying Mary had not demanded money. She thought Mary would have cooperated even without payment. For someone like Mary, who has always sought attention, that might be true. Wow, 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 wow. Then there's comments. The fact that it was a child who had who had to go through with this is sad don't get me wrong mary should have been punished from the beginning but it's so sad to see someone so small do something so terrible mary bell's mother let her down big time someone said (laughs) yeah we agree wow 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 like 11 comments are very oh my gosh i'm gonna send you this comment off air it is very vulgar this man or woman is dj truth one is very upset about this story but yeah that is insane and that is the story of mary bell the 11 year old serial killer who then went on to live a normal life after that this puts me in such a spooky mood i just want to watch like true crime documentaries the rest of the day what's the one what was the football player documentary on netflix what um oh aaron hernandez yes i didn't watch that one yet but we did just watch the American Murder Story. Um, let me get it up for you guys because that was crazy. Very sad. And it kind of like didn't have many twists and turns because you kind of knew who it was the whole time. But still very, very interesting. A lot of people recommended it to me on Instagram when I asked what you've recently watched that you liked. And Sean and I watched it. It's super sad. But it's crazy because this woman like documented a lot of her life through Facebook videos. So it's like you can kind of watch her life play out in this documentary with like real life videos and comments and stuff i don't know it's very cool but let me see if i can find it gabby chat while i'm looking for this please 
So the documentary of Aaron Hernandez was crazy because it's just like someone that was like a known football player and blah 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 but it wasn't very uh mysterious at all like all evidence pointed to him there was no like questions behind it so it was still entertaining but it wasn't one of those like you're on the edge of your seats like like the pizza bomber like evil genius you were on the edge of your seat because you're like who the heck is involved with this did he know about it did he not know about it and it, it was like a crazy documentary where the Aaron Hernandez one wasn't as questionable but then there's the trials of Gabriel Fernandez, and that one breaks my heart. That yeah, I couldn't watch that because kid. it was way too sad. Oh yeah, I couldn't God. watch that. That family just absolutely tortured him, and the fact that so many social workers were called and not a single one reported anything drives me insane. So I feel like that whole system needs to be fixed, along with like the police so system hard. and kind of blended together and like yeah. Because, like that she said, mental is health so is hard. such a huge, like, thing. And just having social workers be able to see those signs early on and kind of go with police to anything that's called I for know, those situations. I know, but it's so, it's so difficult because... Right, those parents are obviously going to lie. And they're going to tell you everything right. you want to hear. And the kid, like, it's they're so young and yeah. So the Netflix one I'm talking about is called American Murder, The Family Next Door. It's very interesting, Gabby. It's not, like, scary, so you could definitely watch it alone. So, I don't know. I recommend it. It was interesting, but it's not, like who did it they really only have one suspect the whole time but it's kind of weird to see how his story changes and I don't know but that is that and it was very I think it's cool because not cool but like the way the documentary is it's neat because it has all of her firsthand text messages videos Facebook posts like I don't know it's just crazy how like you can put her whole life to the story firsthand so that is that if you have any recommendations for us please leave them on the instagram post with this episode i am very interested in watching anything like this thrillers true crime i don't like things that are too scary however i will say i am gonna watch the haunted the hill house and the bly manor without sean we tried to watch it he said it was too scary i am gonna try to watch them because they look very interesting i've heard that the writing is so good and are you it has um okay you're the same. I know, girl but that if I watch them, peed her pants watching a scary movie <laughs> in middle school. Yeah, in sixth grade, I went to a movie with all my friends and I peed my pants um, at one missed call. That's what it was, not the stranger one. It was one missed call, I think. Um, yeah. Not when a stranger calls, but yes, I am the same person. But when I watch it in the daylight and I'm so interested in like the, when you the don't story when you don't put it, yourself in the okay. victim's point of view and you just watch it when as it like has a, a good story. I don't like scary movies that don't have a good plot because then I'm just scared. So or I scary think that's movies the that like could, what, are what are, super, the, what are yeah. the crimes of those movies I literally don't even well know. the haunting of hill house and stuff is like ghost stories so that might be scary for me but I like the plot behind it so far I've only watched like part of episode one but it has love from you in it and I like her as an mm. actress so I want to watch it so I'll keep you updated on that another one I've never watched is American Horror Story I think okay, those see I've watched American scary. Horror Story they're not scary you ha- Coven is so good nothing compares okay to Coven. maybe I'll watch Coven. do I need it's to watch them in order no Coven okay. has not really it's all about witches and I that's just a really good series that is that like Halloweeny should I watch that yeah actually. maybe I'll start that today yeah the newest seasons the, like there wasn't one this year right I don't think I don't know I used to watch I don't that know. I never watched that by myself so I like haven't been in it but Coven is good a lot of the other ones I didn't get into Murder House isn't bad the newest okay Coven is on Netflix good. I will watch that Coven is really good it's not necessarily scary or like true crimey at all, but it could get you in the spooky mood. So I recommend that one. 
It has a 97% match for me on Netflix, so it's, apparently yeah. they think I'm going to like it. It's good. Other than okay, that, I'm going to add it I to my list. Think, like, American Horror Story is kind of a weird name for that series. Because it's not like it's any horror story. I mean, I guess it'd be considered horror stories, but not like in that sense where it's like following a crime that happened. Roanoke didn't like um, the election one, the the gang one. I don't know what it was called. Didn't like that one. The newest one wasn't bad. The camp one, if you want to watch that one. I don't know if that's one Netflix yet, but that was the newest season, I believe. And that one wasn't terrible, but supposedly they're doing like a coven reboot one of these seasons, and that's going to be really good. Okay, well, I'll maybe start that then. I want to watch The Haunting. I only have like a week before Halloween, so I need to like watch all these shows now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm watching Emily in Paris. <laughs> I'm going to watch that next. Halloween I haven't gotten movie. there yet. I'm finishing The Bold Type on Hulu, which I'm going to be so sad when it's over. They haven't been officially renewed for a new season, but because of coronavirus, they had to stop filming early, so they kind of had to, like, cut the season short. So I'm almost done with that. It's we very good. To, we need to get in, way into how to get away with murder more. We are still only I, on, I, what, season three? I've watched it all, but anytime you want to watch, girl, I love that show, so just know, let me know. but I feel like we never have time, even though, I don't know. We got to figure it out because... Maybe over Thanksgiving break, we'll just binge it together. Okay because you'll be here okay well that is going to be it for this episode if you liked this kind of thing i am very interested in doing more episodes and i will like do this, more research not around and Halloween. i will be better as a storyteller next time that well that i'm first gonna make story gabby was literally listen to my favorite murder that first article well just that crime in that story in general is so all over the place because the way they found the details was so out of order that that story is just like hard to read but I 10 out of 10 recommend watching the documentary. And as you're watching it, just know that this was less than 10 minutes away from us growing up. And we had no idea. Ordered pizza from the place all the time. Lived right by his house. Had no idea this happened. Went to that Sam's Club on the same road that he blew up in. And no one, like, I say that now every time we drive past the street. I'm like, oh, that's where it was. And, like, no one mentioned that every other time we went to Sam's Club. Weird to me. Anyway. Yeah. I recommend watching that on Netflix. Anyways. Let us know your thoughts on the episode. If you are feeling willing, leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. I've gotten a few DMs asking how you do that. It's just right on the Apple Podcast app. You scroll down, you'll see it. We appreciate you guys so much. We have the best listeners. The app literally is just called, it's not called app, it's just podcast. It has like a purple logo. If you have an Apple device, yeah. thing. But we yeah, have one for app. sure exciting guest. We have one for sure exciting guest on the next episode and then one possible exciting guest at some point in the future. So get excited for that. And we will see you guys in the next episode. So without further ado, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Chicken, Chicken Noodle, Noodle Scoop. Scoop. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>